0: Lord, give us ears to hear and hearts, Lord, that are that are tender for your word. And Lord, would you do in us what you desire in order to conform us to the image of your Son, we ask in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Um, I have uh, some very fond memories of my time uh, at university. I went to a Christian college, and every once in a while, my pastor, Paul Vanneman, Uh, would come down to the school, and usually when he came down to the school, they would invite him to preach in chapel. And the student body uh, there was about 7,000 students or so, and um, he was an unusual preacher. When he preached, um, his voice boomed, and it was loud, and it was authoritative. It was a different kind of preaching, the kind of preaching that didn't need a microphone necessarily. Um, And... As he began one particular sermon, uh, he read his text, and he said this to the students, I know that you have classes, tests, and quizzes that are on your minds this morning. I know that you are probably thinking about your girlfriend or boyfriend or the date that you have for lunch, but this morning, I want you to listen to me. This morning, I want you to listen to what God has to say, and if that wasn't sufficient, This is what he did. Hey, you in the balcony, are you listening to me? Hey, you over there on the left, are you listening? In the back, are you listening? Over there on the right and you in the middle and here up front, are you listening to what I am saying this morning? And after that, the auditorium went down to this hush. You could hear a feather land on a marshmallow Their their attention had been commanded, and they were ready to hear from God. There was just a, a way about how he communicated that caused people to say, I'm focusing in, I'm paying attention. Now, friends, I don't know if you caught this a couple of weeks ago, a little earlier in the story but there's, there's something foundational about the, the, the text that we are in today. Because when Jesus went up the mountain with Peter, James, and John, the Father spoke from a cloud, and here is what he said. This is my beloved Son. What? Listen to me! Or listen to Him! And what we have now unfolding is a shift in focus. We have been focusing on who Jesus is. Now we're focusing on what Jesus has come to do. And this is now where we step into the role of seeing the disciples listening to the master, listening to what he has to say. Let's think about the structure of this text. This passage emphasizes Jesus as a master teaching his disciples. In verse 35, we're told that Jesus sat down and called the twelve. That is a picture of this, this formal positioning of a rabbi who is ready to teach his disciples. And if we took the, the text all the way to verse 50, we would find four specific topics that are addressed. First of all, he teaches on suffering. Then he teaches on the subject of Greatness. Then he deals with uh, this teaching about other disciples, other disciples that are preaching and and teaching the gospel but that the disciples don't know about. And then teaching on causing others to sin. Now this week we'll look at the first two as a unit because I think they go together. And next, uh, Not next week, but the following week we'll come back and we'll finish the next two as one unit. But it's worth us considering asking the question, what is a fundamental responsibility of being a disciple? And the answer to that question is, a disciple is a learner. A disciple is learning from a master. So it implies that we're listening to the master teach, or doing our homework uh, to be familiar with his textbook, or asking questions When we are confused or having a hard time understanding, or humble and teachable in our hearts because we're ready to have our preconceived ideas challenged. So, I I ask you, friends, what is your attitude toward discipleship? Are you eager to listen to the instructions of the Holy Spirit through His Word? Are you personally engaging in His Word as a learner? Do you understand what you're reading? Or are you asking questions when you don't? Are you humble and teachable when God presses you to consider what he is saying in his word that might challenge your preconceived ideas? See, that is what Jesus is going to be doing with his disciples as he embarks on this new journey, so to speak, from this point on to Jerusalem. And so this morning, my proposition is him. I'm sorry, I didn't have those things up there. This morning, I would like for us to consider this, that as Jesus teaches his chosen disciples, he confronts their preconceived ideas about what it means to be a disciple, what it means to be a follower of Christ. So when he's talking about suffering, are you willing to suffer for the gospel? When he's talking about serving, are you one who is serving in a gospel-like way? When he's talking about separation or, hey, why are those people doing that? They shouldn't be doing that. Are you considering your partisan attitude in light of the gospel? And are you a person who is causing someone to stumble? Are you guilty of that? Maybe you don't even realize that's the case. The disciples may not realize what they are saying. What they are doing could be the reason for that. So let's begin by looking, first of all, at the fact that the Messiah must suffer. Now remember, in the Jewish mind, a suffering Messiah didn't make any sense at all. It was completely foreign to their thinking. They were waiting for a deliverer, a deliverer to come and to conquer and to overthrow the Roman oppression and and establish this this new kingdom on the earth. And what, what Jesus repeats to his disciples here is something completely different. Let's begin by just looking at verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples. See, Jesus now has shifted focus. He doesn't want anyone to know about the things that have happened, because now he's thinking about and he's focusing on his disciples. In other words, what we're going to find in the rest of Mark's gospel is Jesus training his disciples while he is on this journey to Jerusalem. In other words, we're moving from this public ministry to this private ministry with his chosen disciples. Now certainly, Jesus will still do things in public, but we're going to find him interacting with his disciples far more because he is training them for his eventual departure. And so as, the Luke, as Luke's gospel says, Jesus has now resolutely set his face toward Jerusalem. His work on the cross is now his focus. And while he's focused, he is going to be training his disciples along the way. Now, that's the private passion. Now there's this, this passion in general. Let's see as we read this section together, there are three clear presentations of this passion in Mark's gospel. In fact, um, in both or in all of them, there is this, both this progression that's going on as well as um, some, some differences as to who is actually responsible for Jesus' suffering and death. The word passion, by the way, is a word that describes Jesus' suffering and eventual death. Okay. The first passion account is found in Mark chapter 8. In Mark chapter 8. And if you notice there, if you have your Bibles at verse 31, this is what it says. And he, that's Jesus, began to teach them the disciples, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And so in that passage, it is the religious Jewish leadership that is identified as those who are responsible for his suffering and death. Now, if you jump to chapter 10, which is the third passion passage, it says this. This is chapter 10, verse 33, and verse 34. It says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. So in that passage, it's not just the Jewish religious elite, but it is also the Gentiles that are being talked about. So now we find out the Gentiles are responsible also for his suffering and death. But now we come to what is the second Passion passage. That's in our text. And I want you to notice what it says. It says, He was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. So Jesus, the Son of Man, is going to be delivered into the the hands of men. In other words, all humanity. You may be tempted to think that, that only in recent centuries that man's inhumanity to man has been present. I mean, with things like the forced hunger of the Ukrainian farmers. or or the Holocaust of the Jews, or the the Rwandan genocide, if you remember that, or the atomic bombs uh, being dropped on Japan, or ISIS and their beheadings and things like that. But the reality is, friends, the same kind of brutality from humanity was also taking place in Jesus' day. Inhumanity to humanity is not a new phenomenon. And so what we have to recognize here is this, that even even David, king of Israel, understands the horrific inhumanity of man. Listen to what it says in 2 Samuel. You may remember this from the time we were going through it. It says, Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. He understood the, the horrific nature and the way that man deals with man. You see, some will point their finger at the Jews saying, you killed Jesus, and the answer is what? They did. (laughs) Some will also point their finger at the Gentile leadership and say, you, Pilate, are to blame for Jesus' death. And he was. But the reality is that humanity put Jesus on the cross. Now let's step back a little bit. It is true that it was agreed in eternity past by the members of the Trinity, that the Father would send the Son into the world to bring about his plan for his people. It was the Godhead's will that his Son would suffer and be killed. In fact, we find that in Acts 2.23, where we're told this, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That's pretty specific, right? God planned it, he prepared it, he initiated it, he carried it out. But then it says, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So the reality is, yes, it was part of God's plan, but, but man is responsible. And that's the point. Humanity is ultimately responsible for the death of Christ because of our sin. Second Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Now just ponder this thought, that you bear a shared responsibility for Jesus' death because you are part of humanity. It's a sobering thought, isn't it? That's the passion in general. Now the passion in particular, let us notice that uh, this passion in particular is marked by what we read next in the text. This is, and they will kill him, and, they will, and when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. There are key similarities of each passion account that can be summarized into three points. I think you've caught them, but first of all, let's consider them. The Son of Man, first of all, must suffer. He is delivered over, and he suffers in, in, in a way, uh, in many ways, the beatings at the hands of the soldiers, the whipping with the cat of nine tails that shredded his torso and back, the crown of thorns thrust into his hand, the uh, the carrying of the cross to uh, to his crucifixion, that walk of shame, the mockery and the scorn directed toward him as he hung on the cross. These are all descriptions of the kind of suffering he experienced. But hear this. Suffering wasn't sufficient. It wasn't just that he would suffer, but he had to die. He had to be killed. He didn't simply die. He suffered and died at the hands of guilty men. In other words, the very ones who were guilty were the ones that were putting him on the cross. The innocent now hangs and dies as a sacrifice for the guilty. He hangs there paying a ransom for the sins of humanity. And then, of course, the Son of Man will rise after three days. So it wasn't enough that he would simply die. The proof and the power of Jesus' prediction was rooted in his claim to rise again the third day. He didn't just say, rise again. But he's more specific. He says, rise again when? The third day. That's pretty specific. If I said to you, hey, I'm going to die, but in, let's say, four days, I'm going to rise again. Let's see, Jesus is specific. In fact, he quotes an Old Testament prophet and reflects back to Jonah as the three days. Just like that, he is going to rise again. So this is the passion in particular, just just reminding ourselves what Jesus said he was going to do, and all those things came true. And then there's the passion, what I'm calling incomprehensible. I know it's a shameful way to actually follow through with the analogy or the alliteration here, but it works, all right? They did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. In other words, the, the literal meaning here is it, it, it escaped them. The meaning was, was lost to them. They were ignorant of really what he was on about. Now, they were likely confused about the Messiah's suffering. I mean, that he would, he would be inflicted with pain and, and scorn. Um, that challenged certainly their, their, their Hebrew worldview and thought. But they were certainly blind to what Jesus meant about rising again the third day. They didn't understand, but here's the problem, and they were afraid to ask him. Now, in contrast, friends, let's just think about this. We should should seek to understand with the help of the Holy Spirit who ministers to us through the Word. And if we can't get it, We should have no fear of approaching Christ. We should have no fear of saying, God, please help me. I'm I'm struggling with this. I want understanding. He is approachable. And not only that, he can be trusted. He wants us to learn. He wants us to grow. And so we come before him through prayer. And we take time to study his word. And we seek help from others who may be able to bring insight so that we can be aware of what God is actually saying in his word. That's why we take time here, not just to kind of give you a little, a little message that I come up with, but to, to try our best to, to unpack the truth so that you can bite into what God's word actually is saying. And you can see by how we're handling God's word how you can approach God's word and mine it and understand what it's saying. So the question for us, friends, is this. Are we willing to suffer as followers of Christ? Now, Jesus was ready, but he had to endure. Jesus was aware of what he had come to do, but he still had to face the hardship. Now, some of our softness as Christians may be because we're never really challenged about our faith. We don't share our testimony with friends and co-workers. We keep a low profile and purposefully don't broadcast our allegiance to Christ. We like the comfortable Christianity that we're blessed with. And and friends, trust me, this is comfortable Christianity. And there's a blessing to it. I mean, you enjoy it. You're able to raise your kids in it. We're able to gather freely. We're, we go out for meals afterwards and, and we turn on Christian radio and it's, we have so much that's in our comfortable Christianity. But what if all that were to change? What if suffering for Christ became the norm? What if persecution for attending church became the standard practice in our society? What if claiming Christ became a form of hate speech that would come with serious consequences? What if having a copy of the Bible would put you in jail? What if converting to Christ would bring about your execution? See, I don't know that we really understand this suffering dynamic. And here we are, worried about maybe even identifying in public as a Christian. And as we think about those possibilities, we must remember something. and just, just, just hear what I'm about to say about who we are. If we are disciples, we are disciples of Christ. If we are followers, we're followers of Christ. We're part of the body of Christ. Christ. This world is not our home. Christ is our hope. He is our joy. The prospect of heaven is our hope. It is our rest. And that's all bound up in the fact that we are in Christ and we are his children. But if we hold our cards close or hide them why are we doing that? I don't mean you have to go to, you know, go to work tomorrow with a big t-shirt that says, you know, I'm a follower of Christ, you know. Got a problem with that? Might be a few words too long on a t-shirt, you know. You don't have to be obnoxious, but just the way you live and the way you behave and the way you talk and, and the things you say and the way you encourage. And, and, and when people ask you questions, you, you're very clear and you're bold and you say, hey, yeah, I'm a follower of Christ. Yes, I do believe that the Bible is God's word. It has been proven over and over and over again. You have any questions? See, we, all, we, we tend to take the back foot. Oh, I don't want to cause any stir. People want to challenge us. Say, you know what? It's true. I know it to be true. I've studied it. I've I've read it. Because those who are not followers of Christ have no comprehension about what you have. They haven't read the word of God like you have. They haven't studied it. They don't know what it actually said. They only have preconceived ideas of what they think it's about. Remember this. The title Christian was established as a derogatory statement. Not simply a statement to identify a certain group of people. It was a derogatory term. And that's who we are. We bear by our identification the shame and the reproach of Christ. The Messiah must suffer, and so will his disciples. That's a preconceived idea that needs to be challenged, (laughs) that we will not suffer or that the Messiah will not suffer, we as his followers will also suffer. It changes the paradigm. It changes the thinking of the disciples and should help us to reconsider where we are, what we're doing, and how we live our lives for the glory of God. Secondly, the Messiah must serve. The Messiah must serve. And it says they came to Capernaum. And in Capernaum, they go into a house and, of course, this is kind of like the, the, the hometown. This is where Peter's home uh, likely was, and it was likely Peter's home that they went into. And it says in verse 33, And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. So let's get this visual picture here. I'm calling this the Inquisition. Um, because Jesus asked them a question and it's a penetrating question. Now the the picture here is of of a master and typically in the culture of that day we don't know this exactly how it happened but typically in the culture of that day the the rabbi or the master would walk ahead of the disciples. That's just out of matter of respect. It's just what what they would do. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh, we have a problem here. Um, So he would would function out of uh, well, I don't know what to do with that. Um, he would function in, as, as a leader and he would, he would be walking in front and the disciples would be behind him. And as they're behind him, they're carrying on conversation, discussing maybe what he said, discussing things that had happened that day. And so Jesus now is, is coming to them with this, having, having heard what they had been talking about, he now asks them this penetrating question because he knows what they were talking about. And he says... What were you discussing on the way? And it's interesting here in verse 34, it says, but they kept silent. I mean, you you get the sense that they were ashamed to even mention what it is that they were talking about. For on the way, Peter says now, probably dictating to Mark, because he was there, he gives us some of the data. On the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Now, who is the greatest? We love that question. That's so much a part of the fabric of our society, isn't it? Who is the greatest basketball player of all time? Is it LeBron James? No. Is it Michael Jordan? Is it Larry Bird? Is it Wilt Chamberlain? Who deserves to start for this basketball all-star game that's coming up? You've probably read some of that in the news if you follow sports. Who's the greatest soccer player in the world? Is it Pele? Is it Bobby Charlton? Is it Johan Cruyff? Some of you might remember that name. Is it Lionel Messi? Is it Ronaldo? It's all these discussions that take place. Who's the greatest? And in in the world of boxing, we know who the greatest is. It's Muhammad Ali. And how do we know that? Because he says, I am the greatest. There is no question about who is the greatest in the world of boxing. In 2005, the British public voted Winston Churchill as Britain's greatest person. It took a long process, and the whole country was involved in this opportunity to vote, and they came up with a list of top ten. I'm just going to give you the the top five. Number five was William Shakespeare, of course, the, the poet and playwright. Number four was Charles Darwin, the evolutionist. Number three was Diana, Prince of Wales the wife of Charles, Prince of Wales. Um, number two was Isambard Kingdom Brunel. Anyone know who that is? Yeah, you're like, how Where'd they come up with that? Well, he actually was a very, very famous shipbuilder and builder of bridges and tunnels. So um, an uh, architectural engineer that did so many things years ago. And then number one, of course, was Winston Churchill. Now, Not to be outdone when here in America they found out what they were doing in England. (laughs) Well, we've got now to find out, you know, who is the greatest American. Number five, Benjamin Franklin. Number four, George Washington. Number three, Martin Luther King Jr. Number two, Abraham Lincoln. Number one, Ronald Reagan. Now what's the point of all this? It's not to quibble with the answers. The point of all this is that we are consumed with being the greatest. And we're consumed with trying to figure out who is the greatest. Or determining who deserves to stand at the front of the line. Even in the next chapter, the disciples will still be arguing about this point. When James and John asked to be seated on Jesus' left hand and right hand in his kingdom. The praises of greatest privilege apart from Jesus. Now, you know what it's like to go to a wedding or a birthday party and you're seated at table 15? And someone is assigned to be the, you know, the, the chooser of the tables and all that kind of stuff. And you're, you're thinking to yourself, see, you, you're all laughing because you know exactly what I'm going to talk about here, right? You're thinking to yourself, you know, it would be really, really great if if I could be toward the, the front of the line. We don't have to be the first table that goes, but if we could just be at the front of the line, because I don't want to be table number 26, because there's hardly going to be any food left, and by the time I eat, all the leftovers are going to be gone. But you know what? In order for me not to be table 26, I know the father of the bride. And maybe if I just go over there and talk to him a little bit, maybe I can you know, kind of just smooth a little bit, and maybe they'll catch my eye and I can get my table to go before the others. Don't tell me you haven't thought like that when you're at a wedding or a birthday party. Why is that the case? Because we think that we should go first. We think that there's something about us that's really important. We're selfish, we're self-serving to the point that we will manipulate situations so that we can be served well. And this idea of greatness is also present within the church at large, and possibly here in our own church too. We talk in terms of who are the greatest reformers, or who are the greatest Puritans, or the greatest figures in church history, or the greatest preachers, or the the greatest missionaries. And it isn't that the people who are mentioned do not have any reason for being recognized or considered, but to be given the title of greatest is a rather dangerous place to find yourself. Now friends, hear this. I do think that it is right to say that the greatest Christians are the ones that are serving the Lord faithfully where he has placed them not looking for accolades, but only looking to give honor and praise to their Lord and Master. I think those are the greatest Christians. Now, Jesus, having identified the disciples' sinful pride and wanting to teach them about true greatness, gives some profound instruction. I was going to click my PowerPoint, but... Apparently, I don't need to. So now we have moved from the Inquisition to the instruction on servant leadership. Look at verse 35. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. So he sat down. As I mentioned, this is the, the posture of a rabbi who is ready to teach. And he's gathering his, his disciples around him. And it's time for a serious lesson based on their conversation, based on what they were arguing about. And something profound is about to be said. So get your notepads ready, You know he's saying, right? Or in that, that case, your chalkboards or whatever they might be. Write down these words because you need to remember them. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Friends, that is a profound statement from the lips of Jesus for us. Now, you might, you know, I'm sure they they listened, they heard that, and they thought to themselves, Huh? Well, what does that mean? How, How can, how does that compute? Now, is that what you're teaching your children? You go to a little league game, and you look down at your, your son, you say, Johnny, just remember that to win this game, you need to be the servant of all and the last of all. Now, now, go get him, boy. That's probably not what you're doing. No, typically, we just want them to do their best and to win the game, right? I mean, that's, that's usually where we're at as parents. And friends, that is why some sports teams might have the best players, but they don't win because each of those best players thinks highly of themselves and is more concerned about how many goals they score or how many points they get. And so as a result, you may have a team full of great players, but they're not team players. And so they end up Losing, because they think that they are the greatest. Now, let's just remind ourselves that Jesus is talking to the disciples. They're not the -the run-of-the-mill Christians. No, these are men who have been hand-selected by their Savior. And let's just catalog what Mark has told us a little bit about their interaction with Jesus. They've been with him for almost probably over two years now. They have been with him as he's performed miracles. They've actually shared in some of those miracles. They've heard him teach. They've heard him preach many times over. They've benefited from personal, private instruction with him during that time. They've even been chastised by him and corrected by him. They've been sent out in ministry by him. They've watched their master in many difficult situations. They've been involved in the ministry and and in such a way that they've seen miracles, you know, Right in front of them. And Jesus is saying to them, to the chosen disciples, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Now, how can that be? I'm sure the disciples were thinking to themselves, don't we get frequent Savior miles or something like that? Does doesn't our time with Jesus count for something? And, of course, the answer to that would be, yeah, you're learning, you're you're getting experience. But, see, this is not the first time we've come face-to-face or come up against this kind of teaching. We encountered it in the first words of John the Baptist who says this. It's the beginning of Mark. I am unworthy to strap the sandal of the one who comes after me. There's a humility. There's there's, There's a servant attitude that comes there. And, of course, in John's gospel, we hear John the Baptist say, He must become greater, and I must become less. Derek Thomas says, when pride is in place, it inflates like a balloon, but grace punctures that balloon and lets that hot, proud air out of our system. We need to stop thinking that we are the center of the universe. We need to stop thinking that it's all about me or drawing the circle around ourselves and saying this is what is most important. I know you don't literally do that, but in your mind you probably do. The issue here isn't whether I'm the greatest. The issue is whether God is being glorified. Now Jesus, is he saying here that you must always seek to be last in line? Is that it? Just wait for everyone else to go and get in the back of the line? I'm the greatest now. No, or you must be ready to be a servant or a deacon or a minister. Well, I'm sure that's part of it. Or you must be ready to, to have a servant's heart. I'm sure some of that is the case. We're told of a story about Winston Churchill. He once had a, a very um, loud verbal tiff with one of his, um, one of his servants. And he used the abusive language and he chastised him. And finally the servant had had enough. And he returned In speaking to Winston Churchill in kind, to which Winston Churchill was stunned, and he said to the servant, who do you think you are talking to me like that? And the servant cowered but said, Sir Winston, that's the way you talk to me. And Churchill looked at the servant and said, ah, but I am a great man. Now that may have been the lowest point of Churchill's life, when he appealed to his own sense of greatness, to excuse himself for demeaning one of his servants. Um, he didn't understand that moment the greatness is found in service. So what does it mean? If anyone wants to be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Well let's let's allow scripture to kind of paint the picture for us. Let's turn to first Corinthians chapter four. First Corinthians chapter four. And we're gonna we're gonna begin reading it at, at verse eight, but This is the Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthian church. He's going to be dealing with the very same issue. But there's some context that we need to have here. See, the the Corinthian church was very proud. They were very arrogant. They they were full of themselves. And God had given them extraordinary gifts. They were a church of of many ethnicities in a very strategic part of the ancient world. But they were a a church that was in a mess, I mean, if you could summarize the Corinthian church, it would be two words, a mess. Or if you actually want to be even clearer, it would be three words, a big mess, okay? They They were a total mess. But they had all these things going for them. And they even had an internal competition to determine who was the best preacher in the church. And some people said, well, we're for Apollos. And some people said, well, we're for Paul. And those who were really spiritual said... But we're for Christ. Paul is confronting this church's arrogance and pride. And much of what he says is quite sarcastic. There we go. Up and running again. Let's begin at verse 8. Already, he says, you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. See, he's he's building them up sarcastically. But then the wake-up statement jolts them out of their greatness fantasy comes. Verse 9. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as least of all. When he's talking about apostles, he's talking about Apollos, Paul, and, and Peter. He says, for I think that that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, to to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you, you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You hold, uh, you are held in honor, but we in disrepute to the present hour we hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I don't think you have recently identified yourself in this way. But this is what Paul is saying about who these apostles really are in light of the reality of God's worldview in what he's doing. What Paul is doing here with this idea or the statement, we are a spectacle to the world, Paul is using an analogy that the Corinthians would have been very familiar with. It was the image of a victorious Roman army coming back after a great battle. And there's a certain order to the parade that enters into the city. First the generals and the commanders that were, uh, that were recognized and distinguished themselves in battle. Then the troops would come. And this is likely when you would see your dad or your brother or, uh, or, or someone like that or your son. Then the prisoners would come and be paraded before everyone Then the leaders of the defeated nations would become, they would be coming in chains, and we know that their death was imminent. And then finally, the condemned. They are the men who had been chosen to face the gladiators or the wild beasts, demoralized, covered in dirt, and many other things. And Paul is saying in that expression that those men are condemned, they are us, the ones at the back of the line, that's us. That is who we are. We are not super apostles. We are the ones who are condemned. Excuse me. So when you talk about these guys as super apostles with neon lights, remember that they're truly men sentenced to death, heading for death. And friends, it's that same attitude that we, we as followers of Christ need to have. And it's the example that Jesus left us And left his disciples in the upper room. Remember, he he removed his outer garments. And he humbled himself to do something that no one else would do except for a servant. And he got down and he washed his disciples' feet. What Jesus was doing in washing the feet of his disciples was to model for them servant leadership. It was a picture of humility, but was also pointing to the humility that he would experience on the cross. What Jesus did on the cross, in a sense, was to not just wash our feet. He was there to cleanse our souls. So it was a foreshadowing of that. Now turn to Philippians chapter 2 and hear what we find in this passage. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8. Speaking about Christ. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he had these privileges of heaven. And he didn't come to this earth holding on to those privileges. He came to this earth having let go of those privileges. Verse 7, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So he had all these privileges of heaven, but he released his grip on those privileges. And humbled himself in order to suffer and die on the cross. This kind of humility is all very contrary to human thought. But it is a mark of a great leader. In the kingdom of God, if you want to be first, we're told, you must be last of all and servant of all. A leader in the kingdom is marked by his servant leadership. And Jesus himself would be that picture of servant leadership. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, notice what it says. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And friends, this is how these two points come together. The suffering Messiah is also the serving Messiah. The suffering servant has come to redeem man from his sin. He's paid the price on the cross. That's what Mark 10, 45 is showing us. Now, if that isn't enough, Jesus now moves from instruction to illustration. And here he brings in a child. Let's read verses 36 and 37. He took a child... And put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now, in order for us to understand what Jesus is talking about here, we need to make a distinction between our, our, our contemporary culture's view of children and consider how children were viewed during the time of Christ, especially in the Roman culture. So first of all, I want us to consider our, our contemporary culture's interpretation of passages like this. They would come to a passage like this and they would, they would say what Jesus is getting at is that you need to, to humble yourself like a child. A child is innocent. A child is, is humble. But friends, the reality is that the common characteristic of children is not humility. It is selfish pride. I don't know if you've ever had kids before. Those of you that have, your child's not innocent. That child is always saying, I am the center of the universe. And if you don't believe it, "Ah!" right? I want whatever it is that's in their their eye. I want it, and I'm going to get it. And if you don't give it to me, I'm going to cause a tantrum. Why? Because it's all about me it's mine your children never said that you can't have it and if you have something i want it's mine that isn't what jesus is talking about at all but see our culture has repackaged children to view them as innocent humble little creatures that are looking up puppy eyes saying oh look at me that's not what's going on here jesus brings this child here and we need to see it in the culture of Jesus' day. In the culture of Jesus' day, children were not valued like they are today. Now, some of that is because of the, uh, the, the, the mortality rates. That the, you never knew how long this child was going to be alive. And so actually, you, you didn't even emotionally connect yourself with those children much because you didn't know they were going to be there for, much, for, for very long. But they were not considered valuable. They, in fact, they were quite ignored because of that infant mortality and their value was only based on their ability to contribute, to work, to be a part of that, that home or that in, that, that whatever was going on in that particular home setting. So Jesus is not saying, you must be like a child. If we read the passage carefully, he is saying, you must be like me, who embraces little children, <laughs> Little children who are regarded as worthless. Little children who are not going to write you great thank you notes for the ministry that you've done for them. Little children who expect you to do things for them and are not always grateful when you do it. You see what Jesus is getting at. He's teaching his disciples a valuable lesson. A lesson we all need to take to heart. that The measure of greatness and the measure of servanthood a servant's heart servant leader's heart is a willingness to engage in ministry to those to whom um, you minister who are not going to thank you who are in some people's minds not worth it in some people's minds mm, the kind of people you want to avoid i just want you to think about this what what does it look like in the context of our lives or in the context of the local church How do you serve in this way in the context of marriage, for example, when you have just got done with with a conflict with your spouse and you're still burning and you're still struggling or you're still torn? It's like making a cup of coffee for your spouse and taking it to them, an act of love in the context of conflict. It's it's doing something kind for them when there is that conflict. In other words, at that point in time, in your humanity, in your sinfulness, you're saying they don't deserve it, they're not worth it, but you fight against that with gospel realities and say, I'm going to do something for the glory of God. How do you serve in that way in your family? Well, you're, you're picking up the trash that you did not... Um, I'm sorry, I'm jumping on the next one. You're cooking meals, washing clothes, you're you're making beds without complaining. But in service to your children. You know what? Yeah, they're supposed to do these things. They're supposed to be the ones who are following through, but there are times that as a loving parent, you're saying, you know what? I'm going to come behind. I'm going to help. I'm going to do something here. That doesn't mean that you shirk the responsibility of the child. It simply means that, You exercise a measure of grace. It's a gospel grace. How do you serve in your neighborhood? You pick up the trash that you didn't make, that you didn't create. You cut your grass and maybe your neighbors without thinking it's their turn to do it, right? Or expecting anything in return. Or how do you serve in the church? Those children... In Sunday school, maybe rascals may not be listening. They may be, you may be pulling your hair out because of all this kind of stuff. You've prepared this lesson all week long, and they're not giving you the kind of cooperation you need. So what do you do? Instead of getting angry, you press on with the gospel attitude that says, their behavior doesn't demonstrate a worth for me doing this, but I'm going to do it anyway because I'm not doing it ultimately for for their glorification, but because I'm doing it to glorify God in this. See, it pushes us through. Or maybe you work behind the scenes and it it isn't acknowledged, but you look to please God rather than to please men. You're not just kind of like doing your thing and looking for people to say, hey, well done, it's looking good. You just, you keep doing it because you realize that what's more important is how you work and serve for your Savior rather than for the accolades of man. Now, the flip side of that is, as a church, we should be looking at ways to encourage and identify and to help and and to bring kind of encouragement to the body. Um, But sometimes we can get so torn because we perceive in our minds certain things. So how do you do ministry? What should be your attitude? Selfless, without expectations of gratitude, and doing it for the glory of God, just to give you a short list. Let's bring this down to a close. Just kind of really summarizing what we were looking at this morning, but a little more directed to us. I think what we have in this passage, first of all, is a call for obedience to the will of God. That's what Jesus was doing. He was coming to this earth, humbling himself to suffer, to die, and to rise again. This is all part of the divine plan. And just like that, God has a purpose and a plan for us. And he communicates that to us through his word. And when he shows us what he desires of us, are we willing to face it? Are we willing to endure it? Are we willing to to follow it? See, one of the marks of true greatness is our ability and willingness to listen to and obey the will of God that is revealed in his word. When Jesus speaks... We need to listen. We need to know God's will for our lives. And like Jesus, we should obey God's will because God's will is always perfect. Secondly, not only a call for obedience to God's will, but there's a call for service to others for the glory of God. It means serving those who are difficult. You ever done that before? It means serving those who are selfish. You ever encountered that? It means serving those who are worldly. Who might do things that just kind of like make you go, eww. It means serving those who are crude. You ever done that? Or serving those who are thankless. And we could just go further down the list, couldn't we? It means serving others for the glory of God. And so one of the marks of true greatness is our willingness to die to self, to serve others, to care for those that no one else really wants to care for. When when you do that, what does the text say? You receive Jesus. And not only that, you also receive the Father. And just get to the picture here. As Jesus is explaining all this, he says, you receive a child. You receive that person that is considered really worthless and, and, and there's no value. When you receive that child, you are also receiving me. It's a wonderful picture. That's an attitude of service that we give toward those Towards others. So this is not a call for children's ministry at all. Jesus is using this child as an example of an attitude of servant leadership. And certainly that would apply in the context of children's ministry. But it is for everything that we do. See, the way up is down. The way to get is to give. The way to be first is to be last. According to kingdom principles. Lord, help us today not to be conned by the thinking of the world in which we live that so easily creeps in to our pursuit of you. Attitudes of greatness, attitudes of eliteness, attitudes of Arrogance, selfishness. Lord, help us to see that you are the suffering servant. And as that suffering servant, you came to die on a cross. And in so doing, to pay the price necessary to satisfy and to appease the Godhead. Lord, we are undeserving of your grace and your kindness towards us. And I ask, Lord, that today, as we begin to to hone in on this issue of discipleship, and as J.D. comes next week and continues that, and as we press on in Mark's gospel, that you not only would continue to reveal yourself to us, and show us who you are and, and what you've come to do. But in that process, Lord, that you would begin to, to work uh, and chip away at our preconceived ideas. And, Lord, that you would conform us to be the kind of disciples that you want us to be. And that we would have humility to listen. Hearts that are willing to be challenged. Hearts that are willing to think. Hearts that are, that are willing to see what you say in your word such a way, Lord, that we would grow in conformity to you as true disciples and followers of Christ. Lord, there's so many things that that we think that might be godly thinking that your word's going to challenge. And Lord, I just ask that you would have a way with us, that you'd have freedom to, 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 to boldly confront us conform us Lord to the image of your son Jesus Christ Lord we, we hunger for that we desire that Lord it is, it is not always going to be um, painless but Lord that the joy and the fruit of it Lord, will be immense you are a great God and Savior we trust you we, we love you imperfectly but Lord we're thankful that you have showered your grace on us help us Lord if it is your will to endure suffering for the glory of, the, of God, and help us, Lord, to serve in such a way that it reflects the gospel that is in us and that through us you can be working your will and bringing people to yourself, that, that the testimony of the gospel would come through our words, our actions. We ask this, Lord, now ask for your help. We ask for your Holy Spirit's strength to accomplish what you desire for us. In your precious name.